Good afternoon. Buenos tardes. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions, and I welcome you to your Virginia Museum of History and Culture. The Virginia Museum of History and Culture acknowledges the Powhatan Confederacy and the Monacan Nation that inhabited the land where this museum now stands. We seek to honor that history and maintain thoughtful relationships with those indigenous people and all the tribes of Virginia. Their story is integral to Virginia's past, present, and future. We also wish to acknowledge the generosity of former trustee Ann Worrell, who endowed this lecture in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan, who was just here uh, speaking with our current president, Jamie Boskett. I hope some of you had a chance to see them. Uh, before I introduce Carl, uh, just a few program notes so you, you can mark your calendars for things that are upcoming. Uh, on March 29th at 7 p.m., uh, we'll be continuing our uh, Between the Lines uh, book club. That's a, a virtual program that you can sign up for. Uh, we'll be discussing the book Tidewater uh, with a special guest, Shaley Howells, who is the director of the Pamunkey Indian Museum and uh, Cultural Center. Uh, on April 7th, uh, two programs. At noon, uh, Kim Borchard will be here talking about her book, Appalachia as Contested Borderland in the Early Modern Atlantic, 1528 to 715. And then at 6 p.m., we'll have another virtual program, um, Commonwealth in Conversation, uh, where we will have uh, partners uh, from across the state that will discuss their roles in developing our Commonwealth, which is our marquee long-term exhibition uh, that will be opening here in mid-May, which provides a multi-sensory explora exploration through the five regions of Virginia. So uh, be sure to try to attend that. Uh, I think that'll be a wonderful program where you'll learn more about this signature exhibit and the ways that uh, 10 museums from across the Commonwealth have worked with us to produce that. And then finally, on April 11th at 10 a.m., uh, another virtual program, uh, we'll be continuing our curator conversation series. Uh, we will get an opportunity to meet one of our new staff members, uh, Joseph Rogers, who is uh, the manager of partnerships and community engagement. This is a brand new position here at the VMHC. But on to today's talk uh, about an extraordinary property in Virginia. Uh, built in 1759 on the Eastern Shore, Air Hall is still occupied by descendants of its builder, Littleton Air. Since construction, succeeding generations acquired and preserved a rich variety of documents and objects, including furniture, books, silver, and paintings. Only a small handful of houses in Virginia can claim such continuity. The material world of Air Hall examines the ever-changing meanings of this place in Virginia's history. Its origins reveal the cultural aspirations of a deferential society built on slavery that emerged in the colonial period. The plantation suffered the tribulations wrought by the Revolution, the Civil War, Reconstruction, several depressions, undermining its social and economic foundations. By the early 20th century, the house was seen as a nostalgic example of an earlier age, a storehouse of family legends and traditions. Preservation and survival, rather than expansion and change, became the dominant attitude toward the house and the grounds. What does this inheritance mean today in the wake of transformative events that continue to reshape the interpretation of Virginia's past? Carl Lounsbury retired as a senior architectural historian at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation in 2016. Over a 35-year career, he was involved in the research and restoration of many buildings in Williamsburg's historic area. And since 2002, Carl has taught architectural history at William & Mary. His many publications include an illustrated glossary of early Southern architecture and landscape, the Courthouses of Early Virginia, an architectural history of Bruton Parish Church, and most recently, the subject of today's talk, The Material World of Air Hall, Four Centuries of Chesapeake History. 
please give a warm welcome to Carl Lounsbury. Thank you, Adam. I appreciate the introduction. Um, I'm told that this is also going out over um, various social media, so we have a large crowd, some I can see and some I can't. Um, I'd like to thank at the very beginning here, Jamie Boskett, um, who uh, was actually very instrumental in our publication of this book. He uh, recommended a, a publisher who we went with and were absolutely thrilled <clears throat> with that, uh, that publisher, Giles, in England. Uh, so thank you, <clears throat> Jamie, for that. I'm also told by Furlong Baldwin, the owner of Air Hall, to remind everybody that the gardens at Air Hall are open every day. You can just drive down and see them, and especially on April 30th, there will be an open house part of the, um, the uh, um, spring garden tours, which he and his mother have been doing for over 80 years. So that's my announcements. Um, get this. Make sure everything works. The Family Bible was the most common and sometimes the only book in the homes of colonial Americans. Not only did reading and discussing its passages form one of the core responsibilities of Christian education, but stories from the Old and New Testaments provided them with examples of people of the book struggle with issues that they too faced in their lives from birth, death, grief, and to the promise of everlasting life. They took solace in these narratives of biblical times, and just as they turned to its ver verses to find names to call their own children, they began to use it to keep a record of their lives, the births, the baptisms, marriages, deaths, and other major family events. The Bible uh, became a repository for documenting the names, dates, and relationships of family members through generations, chronicling in microcosm their own Genesis stories. Not surprisingly, the oldest object associated with Air family at Air Hall in Northampton County <clears throat> on the Eastern Shore is the family Bible. Unfortunately, the first few pages, including the title page of the Old Testament, was ripped out at some time, leaving the date of its publication and uh, uncertain and probably removing any genealogical inscriptions that may have been recorded by the family. However, it was bound in an early time with a copy of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, the, uh, the Book of Psalms, and the New Testament. The latter uh, to retain their title pages with the publication place and date, Cambridge, England, 1638. Old enough to have been um, in the possession of Thomas Hare, the very first of that family in Virginia, who died in 1657, it seems highly likely that it was in possession of his grandson, Severnier, and you're going to get a lot of names repeated over and over there, six or seven Severnieres, uh, when he died in 1728. On his death, the Bible was inherited by his son, Littleton Eyre, and has remained in the family ever since. Littleton Eyre may have continued the habit of inscribing his family's traditional life events in the missing front pages, but he also found it an appropriate place to record his own particular achievements. Five years after his father's death, the 23-year-old Littleton boldly inscribed in youthful script along the outer margin one of, the, of one of the pages in the Book of Common Prayer, quote, Littleton Eyre, his name, 1733, he being sheriff that year, end quote. It was the uh, declaration of an inspiring man eager to make his mark in the world. Uh, what had pre uh, precipitated this extraordinary outburst of pride was his selection on June 12, 1733, by the Northampton County Magistrates to be a sub-sheriff sort of like the Barney Fife of Mayberry, uh, really, um, whose job it was to do routine works for the sheriff, including apprehending petty thieves, remanding debtors to prison, 
serving writs and maintaining order in the courtroom. On taking the oath of sub-sheriff before the justices that day in the 1731 Brick Courthouse in Eastville, Littleton took the first step in his rise to political prominence, which in two short decades he would achieve when he became the lieutenant of the county, a senior magistrate, church warden, and a member of the House of Burgesses, all these together. The biblical inscription was but the first of many signs of Littleton Ayer's striving ambition. In this family story, Littleton Ayer, the fourth generation of Ayers on the Eastern Shore, is the first individual whom we can recognize a personalities whose characteristics are evident, not in his words, but in his actions. With no surviving personal letters, it is difficult to read his attitudes toward his wife and family and those who worked for him or his interactions with his friends, neighbors, business associates, and colleagues who served with him as magistrates um, or as members of the uh, House of Burgesses in Williamsburg at the Capitol for more than 20 years. Few left their candid impressions of him. We know next to nothing of his religious beliefs other, other than he served faithfully as the church warden and vestryman of Hunger's Parish Church that you see here, and he oversaw its construction in the early 1740s. Um, though he had a uh, propensity to scribble his name in the margins of the Bible and even sketched a profile of a ship on one page, we don't know how frequently he opened it to read and take comfort in its words. It is from the success of his varied business interests and the many public offices that we can catch a glimpse of a man who worked hard, was fair in his dealings, and earned the trust and respect of his friends, associates, and the common folk. He may have harbored doubts in his mind, but he comes across as a man who was confident in his judgments and comfortable with his responsibilities, as well as the perquisites of his class. Over his lifetime, Littleton increased his oldings tenfold, amassing more than 5,000 acres of land on the eastern shore, most of them in Northampton County. I'll show you that it's located here at the bottom. There's Northampton, and then just above it is Accomack, and then there's the wilds of Maryland just above that. Uh, without a doubt, the most significant of those land deals was the purchase in 1754 of land on Cherrystone Creek, which belonged to a distant kin. Uh, in the late 17th century, this land had come into the possession of William Kendall, who lived on the north side of the creek. Um, in 1658, he married the widow Susanna Baker Eyre Pott, who was Littleton Eyre's great-grandmother. Shortly afterwards, Susanna and William Kendall had a daughter named Mary, who later inherited the property after her marriage to Hancock Lee, the first of the Lee family, and lived there with her husband before moving in the late 1680s across the bay to Ditchley, a Lee family plantation in Northumberland County in the Northern Neck. Through the middle of the 18th century, the Cherrystone Creek land remained entailed to their daughter, Anna, now an old woman, and her grandson, John Armistead, who was in financial straits and was looking for ways to raise money, finding a will willing buyer in the Littleton Air. Through an act of General Assembly, the Armisteads had the entail docked in the fall of 1754 and sold the 700 acres to Air for 750, 850 pounds, a substantial amount for the period, but must have seen worth the cost as it was a very large tract of land located in the middle of the county, surrounded on three sides by water. One last hurdle for the transaction was the approval of the act by the Privy Council in London. In order to sway its members to view it favorably, Governor Robert Dinwiddie wrote to Virginia colonial agent in London saying, quote, use your interest to get assent thereto, and I hereby send you a letter to Mr. J James Buchanan, a member of the, a London merchant, to supply you with the money to pay the necessary expenses thereof. 
Ayer was a businessman who understood that financial incentive to the right people would expedite the matter in the council, which readily gave its consent. And that um, piece of paper came to the Virginia Historical Society in 1881 by a Severn Ayer. The track christened Ayer Hall became the home plantation of the Ayer family when workmen completed the gambled roof two-story, 40-foot uh, frame square mansion uh, in 1759, as Adam mentioned. And here's the original part of the house is this square box, 40 by 40, with a passageway across on the west side, the parlor here, and a uh, combination library and a bedchamber for, uh, for Littleton Air uh, in downstairs. And there were two heated bedrooms upstairs and dressing rooms as well. It, as you will see, it later got added on to, oops. Uh, this is the, the, the main uh, passage. You see it's fully paneled. It's very nice paneling. Some of the best paneling that I've seen uh, certainly rivals the stuff that you see on the James River plantations. Um, it also had uh, the parlor with the pilasters next to the chimney piece, which is a little bit later. And finally, the smaller room, just a paneled uh, area above the fireplace with the portrait of, of, of Severn Air uh, above that. Uh, it had, which is absolutely extraordinary, these mortise hinges and locks. These are English-made uh, possessions, and they're almost in every single door in the house, both upstairs and downstairs, which I have not seen anywhere else uh, in, in Virginia, uh, the, the, um, the generous use of these very, very expensive uh, brass-plated um, uh, locks and hinges. It also had a very broad staircase uh, with molded handrail and turned balusters. An item in Ayer's inventory in 1769 uh, described, quote, a parcel of stamped paper for hangings, uh, suggesting that some spaces, perhaps this, uh, this uh, stair passage, uh, may have been uh, fashionably decorated with English wallpaper, which predates what you see here on the uh, walls by 50 years. Littleton and his, and his wife, Bridget, furnished their new dwelling with English and regionally made furniture, including black walnut, cherry, maple, and mahogany chairs, an easy chair, and a set of 12 Windsor chairs that could be hauled out in fine weather into the garden on the north side of the house. They had bedsteads, dressing tables, dressing glasses, a chest of drawers, trunks, and four pairs of shovels, tongs, and pokers for the four heated rooms. For entertaining and dining, they had an assortment of mahogany and walnut tables, several card tables, a tablecloth, napkins, knife boxes, along with accoutrements necessary for taking tea and coffee, including a mahogany tea board, teapots, cups, silver sugar bowls, tongs, and spoons. They had it all. They owned Chinese punch bowls and a variety of stemware, earthenware, and pewter. Uh, and other European goods. Some of these items would have been on display in the buffet beneath the arch in the passage, the back part of which was used as dining at Air Hall from a, when it was built in 1759 until the early 1770s when uh, the, a dining room was added to the back side of the house. For festivities, uh, the large silver punch ball that has now been in the family uh, for many generations, took special pride of place among the 237 ounces of silver in their possession. Stored in the cellar were pipes and barrels and casks filled with wine and rum and other necessities such as salt, oil, molasses purchased from afar and imported to the eastern shore uh, in ships owned by the master of Air Hall. As plainly as the scribbled inscription in the family Bible announced Littleton's first steps in his political ascent to power, this well-furnished and well-stocked house with its two-story pedimented porch on the west side facing the water approach from Cherrystone Creek proclaimed his arrival at its pinnacle. An influential merchant, planner, and politician, Littleton built a powerhouse that matched his ambitions 
in a display of costly signaling understood by the ruling elite in Britain and replicated on a much smaller scale here in, in Virginia, those um, who aspired to be leaders in county or provincial politics demonstrated this theory by constructing grand houses on well-tended estates to convey their natural predisposition towards those positions of authority. Building well in colonial Virginia was undeniably a costly endeavor and therefore an efficacious signal of status. A grand house advertised the permanence of their family who had long-term interest in community and could be trusted to the management of its affairs. From 1759 onwards, Air Hall became the beacon of the family's identity and the focus of its power. It was home. This Genesis story of Air Hall provides a rare opportunity to tell the story of the material culture and legacy of a family in one geographic place over four centuries. The house and its surrounding gardens and fields continue to be occupied by descendants of the builder. The longevity of its owners has ensured its continuity. Although there were th three generations of heirs uh, in the dwelling's first 30 years, afterward, between 1789 and 1914, that is between the time that Washington was inaugurated the first president in the United States, until Woodrow Wilson's second year in office, uh, there were only two owners of Air Hall. Air Hall has, since 1914, there have been only two additional ones, so only four owners since 1789. The, the house retains a rich variety of objects from furniture and books, as, as Adam mentioned, uh, reflecting the taste and aspirations of many different generations. Only a small handful of houses, as he mentioned, uh, can boast of, of the collection of longevity as well as all these objects still being in the family's possessions. Some are, are, are well known, such as this card table uh, designed and built by Anthony Hay, the colonial cabinet maker in Williamsburg. Most are more prosaic, but speak of changing fashions and tastes of family members over several generations. From 2017 until 2020, I had the opportunity to explore this family history when I was asked by the present owner of Air Hall, Furlong Baldwin, to document the house and its possessions. In the initial scheme, my task was to oversee the creation of a catalog raisonné of the rich and diverse collection of decorative arts. You should understand that as an architectural historian, uh, I was not the most obvious choice to undertake such a project. In my line of work, uh, a dresser or a bookcase are things that get in the way when you're trying to locate ghost marks of a blocked doorway or evidence of long lost staircase. And the carpets are things you pull up to look for evidence of patched mortises and floorboards where missing partitions may have stood. I agreed to take on the air hall proposal with a few caveats. First, I would, uh, I would be able to call on help from curatorial experts who had been my colleagues for many years at Colonial Williamsburg. I also convinced a few old friends who had worked in this region as independent scholars uh, that they would have the chance to uh, showcase their knowledge of the furniture, ceramics, silver, books, and musical instruments that proved so in too intriguing for them to say no. I also requested that we should run this project through the internship program called NIAD at William & Mary, where I would be able to recruit students to do a lot of the initial research. And I'm proud to say that one of them, Sam Flora, is here in the audience with us. Although the house and many of its objects have been known to specialists in the fields for years, I realized that through the contours had been mapped out, much of the work of documenting the place and its inhabitants had been uh, exhaustingly analyzed. F familiarity can often breed complacency by thinking that there is nothing new to be learned from uh, treading old ground. But 
one of the things that I've learned from all my years at Colonial Williamsburg was that no site yields up all its information in part because we continue to ask new questions about it. And so it proved at Air Hall. By digging deeper into documents, we found the names of individuals who made objects and others who played large and smaller roles in this place over time. We could then make connections in, to other individuals or sites or events that shed light on some familiar or completely new aspect of an individual event or object. The Williamsburg cabinet maker, uh, Anthony Hayes' account for making a card table became a revelation to the CW curators when I showed them this document. Surprising, too, was Savernier's miscellany book that documented his travels to the hot springs of Augusta County in 1762 in search of relief from chronic bad health. His detailed itinerary of the names of places that he stopped on his way to the mountains included Mrs. Jefferson at Shadwell. Further on, there is a faint pencil sketch that shows how to get to Shadwell. Basically, go to the first range of mountains and take a left at the Rivanna River. Who drew it? Was it young Thomas Jefferson uh, for another William and Mary alum? Connections began by recovering names, which led to amazing discoveries as well as to dead ends. I am not sure what to make of Mariah Wilson, who etched her name uh, in, with some friends and relatives on William L. Ayer's front door sidelight at Airville in the 1840s, and then again inscribed her name with old Tom Turkey, Jarvis, uh, inside a heart on a page in one of Scott's Waverly novels in Ayer's library. Was she some incipient vandal uh, or a silly schoolgirl whose boredom and love interest reveal something about the cultural life of antebellum society on the eastern shore? These coincidental markings of a long ago visitor to Ayerville may not lead anywhere but you never know until you try to make them. One of the first things I did uh, when I started the project was to recruit a host of bright students to lay siege to the wills, the depositions, inventories, account books, and private papers in, in local records office, as well as at Air Hall. Over several semesters, more than two dozen students signed on to read and transcribe Northampton County court records extract personal property tax records as well as Severn, transcribe Severn Ayer's miscellany book with its reference to Prime Minister George Grenville of the Stamp Act fame. Uh, and it's, it's uh, labeled as, he's labeled as, the American Gump, an infernal hellish tyrant, end quote, which I hope will soon appear as the earliest reference to the word gump, meaning adult, in the Oxford English Dictionary by at least 60 years. One student also analyzed the colonial port of Accomac shipping records, which helped illuminate Littleton Air's extensive trade connection routes and cargo imported and exported. Another translated Chinese characters on porcelain, which I apparently always held upside down. Um, still others uh, inventoried more than 600 books excavated a slave quarter and measured and drew outbuildings. Their efforts were impressive, so much so that I asked five of them, including Sam, uh, to uh, contribute to the material world of Air Hall by writing on special topics such as spas, horses, and land ownership that interested the heirs across several generations. Their work made it possible for me to hand over to my scholars, such as Silver Act specialist Mark Letzer of the Maryland Center for History and Culture, a complete inventory of primary sources that mention silver, and for colonial Virginia book historian Benny Brown, a full description of every book on the shelves in the house, including marginalia, book plates, and inscriptions for his analysis. As you can uh, surmise from the mention of excavations and measured drawings, my second request was to revise the scope of this study. Uh, besides a traditional decorative arts catalog, my writ was expanded to become a study of the material culture of this place. 
I managed to uh, convince my patron that rather than a narrow focus on the fine things that survived from the late colonial and early national periods, this study should cover the full history of the family from their obscure origins in the 17th century to those who call it home today. My goal was to find edifying narratives embedded in the material world of Air Hall that might illuminate some small aspect of the family's history or illustrate broader trends of Chesapeake society through its long history. One of the ways I wanted to broaden the perspective uh, on the history of the Air Hall family was to make it more comprehensive by writing about the lives of the people who shared this place, including the slaves, servants, tenant farmers, and others who worked and lived there over the centuries. Documentary research has helped us recover names of individuals whose past were unrecognized. I have yet to identify the body servant who spent two years with Severn Air at, the, at William and Mary in the mid-1750s. Along with Severn, there were at least eight others sent by the Virginia gentry who also had body servants in attendance with them. Although the names of Air's servant is unknown, he was responsible for taking care of, of Severn's daily needs and probably slept either in the passage, outside his door, if not inside the same room. One person that has been identified is the enslaved mariner Stephen Booker, who sailed ships for Littleton and Severn for more than 20 years from 1750s through the 1770s. He piloted sloops around the Chesapeake Bay and Hampton Roads, delivering grain and oats to Washington at Mount Vernon, 250 bushels of oats to merchant William Lightfoot in Yorktown, and pipes of rum uh, to Thomas Randolph in Chesterfield County. In 1775, Stephen, who was in charge of the Liberty, a square stern sloop owned by Bowden, Ayer, and Smith, got caught up in the trade squabbles between Britain and her American colonies over taxes paid on imported goods that erupted following the end of the Seven Years' War. British warships sailing in the bay and rivers of Virginia began to rigorously enforce trade policies to prevent smuggling and the importation of goods from foreign ports. Patrolling the James River just east of Williamsburg, a ship of war called the Magdalene stopped Stephen and his three other crewmen, who happened to be African Americans, and accused them of being illegally imported slaves and the cargo of several pipes of rum, a sack of coffee, and a large box of chocolate, uh, which they uh, were carrying had come from the Dutch island of St. Eustatius. Seas for the, these breaches of the law, as well as another ship owned by Bowden, Ayer, and Smith, the Betsy, which had actually carried these goods from the Caribbean to Ayer's landing on the mouth of Hungers River on the bay side of Northampton County. The British captain libeled them in maritime court in the capital in Williamsburg in April of 1775. That court was presided over by John Randolph, the attorney general of the colony, the brother of the first president of the Continental Congress, Peyton Randolph. He was also the builder of a house um, called in Williamsburg called Taswell, now called Taswell Hall, but he was also a Tory loyalist. George Wythe, the defense lawyer, tried his best to bring evidence about the legitimacy of the cargoes coming from the British islands, but Randolph would not have none of it, though he did accept the fact that Stephen Booker was a slave of Severn Air and his fellow mariners were owned by John Bowden. Booker and his crewmen were released, but the ships were condemned. The cargo was to be sold at Burroughs Ferry, which is uh, right below where Carter's Grove is. Here is Williamsburg here, uh, and here is Burroughs Ferry on the James River. Uh, so it was to be sold uh, in, on April the 18th, 1775. Now, you know your revolutionary history. Something was going to happen the next day. Not here, but uh, further north. Uh, the captain of the Magdalene and a contingent of armed sailors were ordered by Governor Dunmore 
in uh, April 20th to sneak into Williamsburg under the cover of early morning darkness and seize the cask of gunpowder stored in the magazine. They did so and made a hasty retreat to their ship with the casks. The following day when the outrage over this theft provoked hot-headed patriots led by Patrick Henry, um, the, the, the captain's men sailed uh, the sloop Liberty where the cask had been lodged into open waters of Hampton Roads where it would be out of reach of the colonists. So it turns out that a ship that had been owned by Savernier and his business partners and its enslaved pilot, Stephen Booker, played a small but central role in the outbreak of the revolution here in Virginia. Just as intriguing and dramatic is the story of 18 enslaved men, including a handful of whom were from Air Hall in Airville, who made a desperate attempt to escape their plight by stealing a whaleboat from Peter Bowden and sails from Air Hall. These men uh, must have included a number of experienced watermen, for they managed to rig and sail it down the bay and around Cape Charles into the Atlantic Ocean, where they navigated it. So they probably stole it from about here, and they took the sails. This is where Air Hall is, and they sailed around here, Cape Charles, and then headed up the Atlantic Ocean. They navigated it all the way to New York City, and where they docked it at Whitehall Slip at the southern tip of Manhattan Island. Once ashore, they tried to blend it in with the stevedores and black sailors who worked and lived in the crowded riverside streets of New York's harbor. Most were captured and brought back to Northampton County to stand trial for the theft of the, of, of the whaleboat. This event occurred in 1832 just a few months after Nat Turner's rebellion, when slave owners on the Eastern Shore were particularly concerned about the ease of movement of enslaved watermen. What we learn from these two very different stories is just how common it was in the colonial and antebellum period for free and enslaved mariners uh, to be sailing the waters of the bay. We shouldn't be surprised. Uh, after all, Frederick Douglass escaped his bondage in Maryland by delivering cargo across the bay to Baltimore by posing as a sailor. The whaleboat incident also brought to light another little aspect of aquaculture of the bay, that whaling was a common activity in the Chesapeake. No, it's not the Moby Dick, Captain Ahab, great white whale kind of whaling, uh, but catching of smaller species of whales in small boats. In fact, the heirs were involved in whaling since the late 17th century. In 1719, inventory of Thomas Eyre III contained a whaleboat and uh, oars, three whale lances, and two iron harpoons, and over 100 pounds of whalebone. The fact that Peter Bowden owned a whaleboat over a century later testifies to the continuity of whaling in the bay for a long time. And when we started asking professionals in the field, they knew very little of this topic. So there's something, every time a new student would come, I asked them if they knew anything about whaling and, and one of them I remember said, no, I'm from Oklahoma, I've never seen the ocean. Uh, so eventually we found someone who was interested in and she wrote a very nice piece for us. A corollary to this recasting of the Air Hall project into an exploration of the material and cultural history of the place was the use of a variety of methodologies to record, recover, and explore aspects of the past that had been lost, obscured, or left undiscovered. Uh, some involved new technologies. Landscape architect Will Riley sent his drone into the sky to sort uh, the original layout of the house lot and garden to the north and tease out changes made in the garden design in the early 19th century. Littleton Air's original garden measured 16 poles in length and 10 poles in breadth, or 264 feet by 165 feet, which was one square acre. The west line of the fence lined up with the west waterside face of the house. The garden was enclosed by a paled fence and divided into six parterres. Parts of the garden were rolled with a stone roller. Purchased by his son Severn here in 1772, from London merchant Samuel Gist, who also owned Gold Hill in Hanover County. 
the placement of the family burying ground was centered halfway along the west wall where there was probably a centered gate. Sadly, uh, the, the heir, heirs no sooner moved into Air Hall when they were uh, buried their first family member. Sarah Eyre Bowden, uh, Bridget and Littleton's daughter who died in late 1760, six months after giving birth to her son, Preeson Bowden. It was much easier to read the landscape in some ways by hovering over it. You can see the work of John and Anne Eyre in the early 19th century expansion of the gardens to the north. They added four more parterres and enclosed the enlarged garden with the current low brick wall, pier, and picket fence, a design similar to one that shows up in Thomas Jefferson's drawings. We also turned to old-fashioned spade work to answer other questions about missing evidence. My air hole project uh, happened to coincide with the major excavations that took place at Airville, the house of the cadet branch of the family in the first half of the 19th century, located across the creek from Air Hall. A storm felled an old tree and tangled in its uh, upturned roots was a cache of early 17th century artifacts. The Archaeological Society of Virginia and others stepped in to excavate the site and the, in the course of their investigations came across several buildings and other features that dated from the earliest English settlement of the Eastern Shore dating to the late 1620s and early 1630s. And it carried on through the early 19th century when the heirs came into possession of the property. When the brick foundations of a house um, uh, and a partial cellar were discovered by the archeologists, it turned out to be the house built by William Kendall and his wife, Susanna Eyre Pot Kendall. Susanna lived there with her three boys by her first husband, Thomas Eyre. Objects such as broken pipes, bottles, earthenware, and other artifacts from the third quarter of the 17th century that have come out of the ground may have been used by this generation of heirs. Again, purely by coincidence, one of the excavators of the Airville turned up in one of my classes at William & Mary, and I discovered that her thesis was uh, in the anthropology department was the material culture of the 17th century Kendall site. Uh, she agreed to write a small section for our book, covering the material well-being of the earliest members of the Eyre family on the Eastern Shore. Combined with room-by-room -room inventory that survives for this house, we can measure the relatively modest late 17th century living standards against the plethora of things that descendants who lived across the creek at Eyre Hall possessed a century later as well <clears throat> as these three generations of heirs who lived there in the first half of the 19th century. At Air Hall, we had the chance to answer some questions about the original home lot, fencing, and domestic quarters by selective archaeological testing of our own. When we first started, we had hoped to locate evidence of the 10 slave houses mentioned in the 1860 uh, census records, and unfortunately, we couldn't find those. And you can see in this 1870s plat right here, where next to the Big E, are a series of black dots. And this is where Furlong Baldwin rec recalled seeing fragments of uh, buildings located there that he thought was the original slave quarter. But um, when the two um, hound dogs and sluice of Tidewater archaeology Dave Hazard and Nick Lucchetti went out and looked. They couldn't find anything there. Uh, so that's, that's sort of a, uh, something of a mystery for us. Failing that, uh, we did hire uh, Nick's crew to do limited testing at a domestic quarter that had been built in the late antebellum period just behind the old kitchen, which was only torn down as late as 1956. The excavation revealed, revealed a 24 by 20 foot house that stood on brick piers. Test units also revealed the location of the boundaries of the late 18th century home lot uh, that was noted by dotted lines in the 1796 insurance plat. What was unusual was that this fence line was uh, not supposed supported by wooden posts, but by brick pillars. In the west yard, 
uh, facing Cherry Stone Creek, there was an eight-foot gap in the brick foundations of the fence line that we found, indicating that that was where a formal gate on center with the two-story pedimented portico was located, uh, which only underscores the point that the west gable facing the water of Cherry Stone Creek was the presentation front of the house, not the south entrance porch as it is today. The house and its service yard was oriented west to east, with the eastern shore, I'm sorry, west to east, uh, the most formal spaces on the west side and the work spaces set up in line with the house uh, 80 feet to the east where there was a 40 by 20 foot brick kitchen, which conceivably was the late 17th century brick house of the Lee family. A dairy was also there, which dates to the construction of the house, as well as a smokehouse dated to 1800. One other methodology for recording information was used was oral history. I enlisted George McDaniel, the former director of Drayton Hall and an ethnographer who has specialized throughout his career in coaxing individuals who have been generally overlooked in the historical documentation to tell the stories of their lives. Forty years ago, 40 years ago, George and I interviewed students, uh, residents, who had lived in the 1920s and 1930s on the antebellum slave quarters refitted as single-family houses at Stagville Plantation outside Durham, North Carolina. The information told us where wells, woodsheds, and privies had been. They outlined the range of swept yards and fences that enclosed the gardens and flower beds. They indicated where hogs had been butchered every December, places where dances were held on Saturday evenings, and groves where the dead were buried. We could populate our site plan with these cultural details. Their vivid recollections describe a vibrant and tightly knit community. Some spoke wistfully of their earlier lives, but none harbored any illusions about the circumscribed horizons they faced as sharecroppers. Judge George conducted a series of interviews with a number of African Americans who ex whose extended family worked for at least three generations at Air Hall from the 1930s through the 1970s. Some could recall an era when horses still plowed the fields and the eastern shore suffered through the Great Depression. Others uh, who grew up there after World War II have memories of a tightly knit community of aunts, uncles, and cousins in a place they called home. The garden looms as a magical place of refuge and imagination uh, in the memories of both the Baldwins as well as the Bagwell and Foman children who recalled playing and strolling through the boxwood line paths. This history and the material culture of Air Hall Plantation illustrates the ever-changing meaning of this place from the 17th through the early 21st centuries. Air Hall, in some ways, is a microcosm of Virginia history. The house and its objects, the gardens, the fields are emblematic of this kind of society that was built on slavery and suffered many disturbances wrought by wars, emancipation, and technologies and agricultural depressions, which undermined the plantation's social and economic foundations. Although unique uh, circumstances shape many aspects of its history, the fortunes of Air Hall and its material legacies might be read in the context of these broader events, which leads to the question that Adam mentioned. How did this extensive collection of documents, buildings, objects, and uh, survive all these disruptions? And what does this inheritance mean today in the wake of transformational events that occur just outside these doors as recently as this year and, and the previous one continue making us to reassess what the historical narratives are all about. These are the questions we can only answer in places like Air Hall where the material culture in their old hierarchical society is largely intact because so much remains of its original, in, in its original context, the significance of these things extends far beyond their aesthetic qualities, uh, which have absorbed so much attention of decorative arts scholarship. Make no mistake about it, there are some very fine pieces here, 
but as an ensemble, they have taken on a variety of meanings uh, over time according to family circumstances and changing perceptions of the past. The goal of the material world of Air Hall was not only to identify and define those things that have been preserved at Air Hall, but to recover some of the stories associated with the people who made, used, and preserved them. This site and its objects revealed changing narratives that defined and redefined the meanings over across several centuries. As noted in my introductory profile of its builder, Littleton Air, the construction of Air Hall in the late colonial period was an assertion of his ambitions to be a leading political and social player in the affairs of the province. For at least two or three generations, when the prestige of the planner elite was at its height, Air Hall was a powerhouse that signified the family's preeminent status in this slave-owning society. In terms of the objects the, uh, that inform the catalog resume, most date from the time of John and Anne Ayer's tenure at Air Hall. After his two older brothers died, John inherited the house in 1789 and married uh, Eastern Shore native Anne Upshur in 1799. During the first 30 years of the 19th century, they remodeled the house, raised the dining room wing that his father Severn had built in the early 1770s to two full stories, and attached a housekeeper's quarter in the eastern wing. So this is the section that was added between 1805 and 1807, as well as this was the older part of the dining room that also got raised by Anne, uh, Anne and, and John Eyre. They also rebuilt the north and south entrance porticos, uh, installed fashionable neoclassical mantles and thin mutton window sash. The pattern in the um, the pattern in the oranges of consumer goods matches this, the broader trends of household goods. Once made locally or in Williamsburg, gave way to regional markets such as Norfolk and Baltimore. High-end consumer items such as jewelry, silver, books, and porcelain starts as British imports, but were supplanted in the 19th century by American craftsmen and manufactured in large cities such as Philadelphia and New York. The heirs filled the interiors with these new things, more silver, ceramics, and furniture, including painted Baltimore pieces. They papered the rear stair passage with scenic French paper of 1817 the, called the Scenes of the Bosporus. Perhaps the most revealing objects are the musical instruments, including a barrel organ and flutes that came into the house with Anne, along with hundreds of pages of sheet music, which was bound in four volumes after her death in 1829. Outside, not only did they enlarge and wall in the garden, but Anne prevailed upon her husband to build a greenhouse in 1819. Sadly, this couple had, who loved to entertain had no children, but filled their house nonetheless with the extensive collection of cousins. Gradually, over the course of the 19th century, with the transformation of agriculture and trade along with disruptions wrought by the Civil War, the lands at Air Hall were still productive, but no longer sustained the family's prosperity. By the 1870s, Severn Ayer, who had inherited the estate from his great uncle in 1855, had invested his money in steamships and railroads and rented out his fields to neighboring farmers. He made few changes to the house and its furnishings. In the early 1880s, Severn and his family of three young children settled in Baltimore, where they would be educated and introduced to polite society. The heirs took up residence at their country retreat during the summers. They also returned to be buried in the family graveyard, their graves marked by large rectangular ledger stones uh, laid flat on low brick walls following the funerary style set by the first burial of Sarah Eyre uh, Bowden in 1760. In the early 20th century, Eyre Hall was seen as a nostalgic exemplar of an earlier age, a storehouse of family legends and traditions. Preservation and survival, rather than expansion and change, became the dominant attitude toward the house and grounds. Photographs of the passage of Eyre Hall taken in 125 years ago 
already show this memorialization of objects from earlier eras. By the time it was literally a hall of curiosities, Boltonaire's cross swords that you can see just behind this lamp there uh, from the French and Indian War uh, was was still there as well as oops uh, as well as the this uh, spyglass that was hanging there for for many years. Um, also in in the hall that hadn't been changed very much were the were the um, prints that you saw of English uh, country houses as well as racehorses, reminding them that horses were an integral part of the Eyre family over many, many generations. Preserving this inheritance became the guiding principles of the most recent generation of stewards. Margaret Taylor Baldwin and her son Furlong Baldwin, who had been in ownership since 1914. Margaret and her husband, Henry DuPont Baldwin, upgraded the house, adding electricity, running water, central heat, and a new kitchen, but did little to change the furnishings. For Mrs. Baldwin, the gardens became a focus of Garden Week tours. The old brown furniture was recognized as prized antiques. In the 1930s, the Baldwins must have been one of the first historic house owners to call upon James Coger and other curators at Colonial Williamsburg. They wrote letters filled with questions about the preservation of their old objects. From this period onward, the family focused on preserving and restoring the fabric of Air Hall. This inheritance became a place of memory and was seen as an assertion of the resiliency, the fortitude, and the good luck of a family that had managed to hold on to such a legacy. In recent decades, Furlong Baldwin has generously shared his amazing collection of objects with scholars and opened his gardens to the public. The obligation to preserve the house, the land, the objects have become the ethos that has bonded the living to their ancestral inheritance. In so doing, it provided me and my co-authors the opportunity to document in detail that rich legacy in ways that are nearly impossible for most other historic sites in the Commonwealth. It was our good fortune to scrutinize the objects that we thought we knew in different contexts to verify some of the old family stories and to call a moratorium on others. Just like a cardiologist, our work has been to clean out the hardening arteries of lore and, and legend by inserting a stint of historical research. In closing, let me show you two of the most recognized objects from Air Hall, the portrait of Severn Air and the Morning Star Bowl. The portrait has had a very good provenance, being in the same family since it was painted. Even the attribution to the artist seems in, in, unimpeachable. In his will made in 1855, John Eyre, Severn Eyre's son, devised the painting to his favorite niece, Margaret A. Taylor of Norfolk, describing it as, quote, the portrait of my father, Severn Eyre, taking, taken by Benjamin West, end quote. Ms. Baldwin reclaimed the portrait in the 1930s from her cousins and reinstalled it in the house. Despite this well-documented history, modern scholars have cast doubt on the evidence. When this portrait has been shown in exhibits, the catalog copy, it's couched in cautious hesitation. No doubt because from a connoisseur's perspective, the quality of execution is, not just, is just not up to Benjamin West the court painter to George III, and the second president of the Royal Academy. Just look at that dog. Of course, this gets backwards. No painter is born fully mature, but le le uh, learns his craft. In the catalog that accompanied the exhibition a decade ago, uh, that inclined, included Severnaire's portrait, it was suggested that, yes, it could be a West, but it might be good to discover the exact connections between the air heirs in Philadelphia when the young West lived in the earliest days of his pro professional painter's career. This is precisely what we have done. Through genealogical sleuthing, Laura Berry and I have been able to put air in Philadelphia precisely in the late 1750s when Benjamin West had taken up uh, under the wing of William Allen, the, the painter's most important American patron. We have at least three or four heir friends and or relations, such as the, the Bowdens, 
on the spot in Allen's house who were either connected to Allen or to West himself. It's time now to erase the doubt that has been lingering about its attribution. The Morning Star Bowl has a family history of being one in a horse race. Furlong Baldwin uh, adds that the horse Morningstall quaffed champagne from it to celebrate the victory. Horses were very important of the air, part of the Air family, especially William L. Air, who probably lost much of his money betting on horses in the late 1840s and was briefly incarcerated in the Northampton County Debtors Prison in Eastville. This sounds like the kind of horse tale that might be told by someone who has not yet brought, been brought down by his weakness for gambling, or perhaps some member of the family may have heard a very similar story with a different horse name, uh, recounted at Shirley by the Carter family. No matter how fanciful the tale, as Mark Letzer has observed, the bowl is one of the most important pieces of early silver in Virginia. It dates to 1692, is marked by the Lo London silversmith John Sutton. A silver punch bowl of this size signified great wealth in the colonial period. It didn't take too long to document the research to find that the bowl had been bequeathed in the will of Bridget Foxcroft to the first Severn heir in 1704. It was at this point Mark wrote me the unforgettable message, who the hell is Bridget Foxcroft? Uh, this plunged me in deep into the 17th century records of Northampton County to discover what the connection was between this woman and Severn Eyre, the father of Littleton the Builder. The reason why this, uh, the reason why this woman, who turned out to be a distant relative to Eyre, left the bowl and other silver to him can be traced to a series of events that were more bizarre and fascinating than the goofball tale of champagne-swilling horse that historians have bought and enshrined in one of Colonial Williamsburg's most memorialized, mem memorable exhibitions in 1999, when Williamsburg was the Wild West, which celebrated the tercentenary of the founding of the colonial city. The material world of Air Hall pro provides a much more engrossing narrative origins as a way of enticing you to discover the history of our book, its history in our book, let me tantalize you by saying that it involved a web of interrelated individuals, one of whom stooped to abusive wife beating, kidnapping, and the forced marriage of a minor. It was also an attempted theft of an estate by bumptious in-laws, and also included the folk memories of the beheading of King Charles I, uh, but this sorrowful tale is redeemed in the form of a young woman named Jane Eyre. Wait a minute, you say. Hasn't this story already been written? Well, yes, uh, but ours is a true story with a villainous protagonist as dark as any in Charlotte Bronte's eponymous novel. It did not take place in the Yorkshire Moors, but happened on the, air sh on the eastern shore of Virginia a very long time ago. I invite you to read the account for yourself and discover other stories revealed in our book. Thank you. And we may have, we do have time for some questions. And we're gonna come down with a microphone so everyone can hear them. I actually have three, but one you kind of already answered. <laughs> in the uh, 1990s, there was a huge tornado that went through and took down, <clears throat> ruined the campground at Cherry Stone and took down all of the trees coming down from Route 13. Right. Did they ever replant those? Or uh, is it uh, well, it, I can tell you what happened at Air Hall. Uh, That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, okay. Yes, it knocked over the, 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 the two tall chimneys on the house, and one of them came falling down on top of the back porch, which collapsed that, knocked a hole in the sides of the walls, and underneath that, they discovered a cache of thrown away porcelain uh, from about 1780 uh, or 90. Um, not buried, but just 
brushed under there. So that was the good thing. The, also, the water came pouring in and, and almost uh, completely ruined the, that wallpaper uh, in the Great Hall. Uh, many trees were taken out in front of Air Hall as well. Um, Furlong Baldwin said he just wept. It was just it was horrendous uh, this 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 disaster, but you know he was in a position to be able to restore it. He called on the experts, many of them from Colonial Williams, to d deal with these these kinds of disasters of, of of you know bricks collapsing down through doing archaeology. So some good came out of that, but it was you know to him it really uh, was a, a, a major, major event in his life, having to bring it back to, to what it had been. The gardens, you know, were tossed and turned, and many, many trees out front as well as in the gardens were Second down. question is real quick. Yes. Um, are, the ba are the fireplaces still in the bathrooms? Yeah, well, yes, uh, <laughs> they are. <laughs> I know they don't use them. Uh, well, I did. Uh, <laughs> no, not the bathroom. The, the, you used the fireplace? Oh, no. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, they don't burn fires in, in their, I know that, in their but bathrooms. Are they, but are they still They're still there, there yes. Okay. Up, two up, things, yeah. that, I've been in the house several times, and yeah. two things that impressed me the most were the fireplaces in the bathrooms and the French wallpaper. Yeah. I mean, that wallpaper is pretty magnificent. Um, if, you know, we have the accounts that came through Baltimore, and the, the French firm was called Dufour, and it was the, the, the beauties of the Bosphorus is what it was called. So it's these exotic. Was it part of the Napoleonic Wars? Well, that certainly awakened everyone to the, the East with Napoleon campaigning in Egypt in the 1790s and, 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 you know, awakening people's interest in, in that exotica. I think that's what Ms. Uh, the first time that I was in the house, I took a garden tour. Right. Oh, right. And I'm sure she mentioned the Napoleonic Wars with some wallpaper. Well, she was a smart woman, and <laughs> so I will not <laughs> doubt what she said about it. That Ms. Peacock was Furlong's older sister. Uh, you saw a picture of her when she was five years old there in that photograph of the family. Anybody else have a question? No, I've apparently stunned you in silence. Uh, well, thank you very much for coming, and those that are out in Etherland, thank you as well. Um, Adam, I'm, I'm, I'm to sign books out here. Is yeah, that Carl the? Will